You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Ray Boomhauer. And if I read his resume to you, I would probably only have time for the five questions. But to say he is a historian of great respect and standing is an understatement, and we're very pleased to have him, and we're going to nerd out for about the next uh, hour. Ray, you're very kind to come on the podcast. Robert, very kind for having me. That's uh, quite an introduction. Maybe I'll have that on my tombstone one day. (laughs) You could be like Rodney Dangerfield. Do you know what it's on his tombstone? I forget. I I did know it one time, but I forgot. What what is it? Something good. There there goes the neighborhood. (laughs) Very good. When did you, we just missed each other at IEPUI. And actually, I think we were there a little bit at the same time. Um, but I don't remember meeting you back then, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the podcast, besides our shared love of of history. Uh, when did you get the bug? I got the bug early on in my life, my uh, interest in history and particularly in, in biography. I was lucky enough to go to an elementary school, Mary Phillips Elementary in Mishawaka, Indiana, that had quite a library. And there were two things in it that really inspired me. One, when you first went in the room and you turned to your left, there was this tall bookshelf, and it was crammed with these orange-covered books. And they were the Childhoods of Famous American series that was put out by Bob's Merrill Company. And these were great books about uh, biographies of individuals that made United States history. Uh, they featured uh, woodcut engravings 
of the individuals featured in the books, and they were uh, written to really pique the interest of a child and get him or her interested in American history. And it did that for me in particular. Uh, now, they gave um, very dramatic stories of uh, these famous people's childhoods like Babe Ruth, Andrew Jackson, uh, Helen Keller, and a lot of other mm. famous names from our history. And I later learned that, of course, that uh, some of the conversations in these books weren't entirely accurate. There was some <laughs> some tweaking done to, to make them uh, more dramatic and more readable, but really inspired my my love of history and, and in particular my, my love of, of biography. And the library also had a, uh, for the time, a very high-tech equipment uh, that was a, a turntable, a record turntable, uh, 30, 30, and a third uh, LPs that you could play. And one of the records that I listened to with the, the headphones of the time uh, was uh, Sounds of the American Space Program from, from NASA. And it gave, uh, you know, details and uh, conversations between controllers on the ground and astronauts in space. And that sparked my interest in Gus Grissom, who later became uh, one of the subjects of the books uh, I wrote. So uh, those two things later on in high school, uh, Time Life did this uh, huge series on the history of World War II. Right. And they were very well illustrated with, you know, uh, photographs uh, from Life magazine. And that inspired my uh, interest in, in World War II history particularly the Pacific theater, because I was just impressed by the incredible distances it took to even get to the battlefield uh, for soldiers and, and Marines from the United States as they fought against Japan. So all those things were early influences on me and uh, continue to be today. What's the first big historical event you can remember? I'm guessing biggest, we're about the same age. Yeah. Biggest historical event I can remember was uh, Robert F. Kennedy's assassination. Uh, I remember sitting down and watching it on TV and watching uh, his funeral uh, broadcast live on, on television. That's the first thing that really sticks in my mind. Uh, I was only, I think, four years old when JFK was assassinated. But I, I really remember uh, Robert Kennedy's assassination. And then uh, later on, uh, sitting in my living room on our couch and watching as they broadcast, uh, I think it was late night, 10 o'clock, might have been Indiana time, uh, Neil Armstrong's first steps uh, uh, on the moon uh, during the Apollo 11 mission. So those two things uh, uh, really stuck out in my young mind when I was growing up. So would you say that your love of history is also somewhat fueled by the time in which you grew up when I mean, you're talking Kennedy assassinations, Martin Luther King assassination, Vietnam War, Watergate, moon landing? I mean, outside of maybe the creation or eh, maybe the 1780s with both revolutions, the American and the French. It's kind of tough to beat that time period from like 63 to 74 and beyond. Quite a dramatic time in American history. And uh, one that uh, if you live during that time, uh, you can't forget uh, those events. Uh, I remember listening um, as the church bells rang in Mishawaka when I was growing up, when the uh, Paris Peace Accords uh, were first struck. 
uh, and the churches were celebrating. And finally, we thought uh, peace in, in, for the during the Vietnam War. Uh, it didn't quite uh, go as as they thought it would. But uh, you're there and you're seeing history being made on, on television, hearing it on the radio, and uh, sometimes you're hearing it yourself in, in your own hometown. Uh, so uh, those times uh, really made me um, want to learn more about history and also one day to uh, you know put it down on paper. And I was lucky enough to do that early on in my career as a uh, newspaper reporter. You led right to my next question. Your your bachelor's degree is from Indiana University, 1982. So you were there in 81, that glorious right. national championship year. We actually had Ray Tolbert on the show one oh, time, and he was a terrific great player. In, yeah. terrific interview. So you're double major in his journalism and political science. Your master's of arts degree is from Indiana University here at Indianapolis in 1995. So you got yours about three years ahead of mine. Uh, you wrote on Jacob Piat Dunn Jr. Who was your thesis director at IUPUI? And tell me after that, speak about journalism, why you chose that. I think most people who like history, like political science, are closet journalists because they like to read, write, and research. I like all those three of those things, so that that's true. Uh, my uh, research director at IUPUI from a master's thesis was uh, Robert Barrows, who at that time was very involved in uh, editing uh, the Encyclopedia mm-hmm. of Indianapolis project. Uh, so he used a, a lot of his students as contributors uh, for that journal. I was lucky enough to uh, write several entries for that. And uh, that uh, really helped me in uh, writing biography because those short pieces really make you uh, get all the important information down on paper in just a a few amount of words. I think there were 300 words to 500 word entries uh, that I wrote for the encyclopedia. Uh, Barrows and uh, David Bodenhammer. We should say that Bob Barrows Barrows is the pride of Muskegon College. Never met anyone else from there, but he's a, he's a terrific man. So please continue your answer. I had uh, started journalism uh, at uh, my high school, Mishawaka High School. At first, I wanted to become a, a photographer. I was very interested in photography. Even built a, a basement in a dark room in, in our basement at, at our home in Mishawaka. Uh, but uh, our journalism instructor. Um, uh, saw some of my work and decided, you know, I think you'd be better on the news writing side instead of the photography side. So she, she wasn't very impressed by my uh, photos. <laughs> uh, and my uh, two friends, uh, Dennis Chamberlain and Dom Froor at the time, were much better photographers. So I got involved on the news side of journalism and went to the high school journalism institute at Indiana University. And that really inspired hmm. me uh, to go to IU, to go to Bloomington, and uh, go to journalism school there. Lucky enough during my time at IU to write for the Indiana Daily Student, uh, work as an editor there. It was a great training ground uh, if you wanted to become a professional journalist. And after I graduated, I was lucky enough to get a job on a small town daily newspaper in Rensselaer, Indiana, in the northwest part of the state. And that's just great training for any kind of writing uh, because you're covering all kinds of stories in a small town like that. You're going out on the street uh, asking a, you know, man on the street questions, uh, to snapping photographs uh, for the paper, developing them. 
helping out in the back shop, actually pasting up the newspaper in the days before, uh, you know, com- computers were uh, on the scene mm-hmm. and really helping out uh, in a composition like that. And you're covering uh, the police beat. You're going to the high school to cover the volleyball match, uh, covering city council meetings, uh, drainage board meetings, which I must say are some of the most boring meetings you ever have to cover <laughs> if you're a journalist. Were you, were you there? A lot of Indianapolis and, or, and or Indiana journalists graduated and worked at the Daily Student. Do you, are any journalists that you, with whom you graduated? Uh, Made it big here? See, uh Tim Franklin uh, is uh, a name uh, that's uh, probably known in Indianapolis. I believe he worked at the Indianapolis newspapers. Uh, Also, our sports editor at that time at the IDS when I worked there was uh, Bob Kravitz. Uh, a very well-known uh, columnist. That's who I was for, looking for. for the, yeah, for the Star right. News, and uh, now I think I think he writes for the Athletic. That's correct. Yeah, that is correct. So, yeah. So when you decide to go through college and and choose a concentration for history, you chose American. Why did you choose the particular thesis subject? What what made him compelling to you? Well, as you notice, I was a double major: journalism and political science. And uh, Jacob uh, P. Dunn Jr. Uh, was someone who was an Indiana historian, uh, kind of a political man of letters as well. He wrote for a variety of uh, Democratic Party-leaning newspapers of the time and uh, worked for the party, uh, was very involved in uh, Democratic politics, trying to reform the Indiana ballot at that time. If you remember the 1888 election that saw Hoosier Benjamin Harrison rise to the presidency, there was a lot of allegations during that campaign of uh, vote buying by both parties, uh, selling uh, the ballot for just you know five dollars or even a bottle of whiskey. And uh, Dunn was someone who hated that, wanted to really have clean elections, and so he endeavored to introduce the uh, secret ballot system uh, to the state. Saw that to uh, fruition. So he was someone uh, who I thought was a very fascinating figure in Indiana history because. Not only was he a journalist, but he wrote about Indiana history, helped to revitalize the organization that uh, I've worked for for the past uh, 30 or more years, uh, the Indiana Historical Society in the 1880s. It was really a, a more bun institution at that time. And he and two other amateur historians, Daniel Wade Howe and William English, got together and uh, got the organization back on its feet. And it continues strongly uh, today. So it was he was quite a guy and someone I really was interested in and uh, worked with a, a lot of Indiana politicians like Thomas Marshall and Samuel Ralston, who were important figures in the early 20th century Hoosier politics. You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Ray Boomhauer. He is the senior editor, Traces of Indiana and Midwestern History. He works at the Indiana Historical Society for the Indiana Historical Society Press, and you should definitely visit that building. I've not been there as many times as I should have. The last time I was there, I hate to say this, Ray, so please, please don't judge. If you don't count some sort of event at night, mm-hmm. is uh, I gave a speech to the uh, Civil War Roundtable there, the Indianapolis Civil War Roundtable. I love that. I gave a speech on the relationship between Lincoln and Grant. It's mm-hmm. such a beautiful, not only auditorium, but the building in and of itself when you walk in every morning are you like all right 
I'm charged up. I'm energized. I'm surrounded by all these artifacts and all these books and all these really smart people. What is it that when you go in every day gets you fired up? Well, there's something new to do every day. Uh, because I work for the press, of course, uh, I'm involved in uh, you know getting uh, Traces magazine out four times a year. And every issue has a different kind of article with a different kind of subject that, that we explore. Uh, we do also publish a, a number of books each year. Uh, each of those can uh, cover a wide ranging uh, field of endeavor from uh, doctors dealing with their patients to uh, an Indiana poet laureate who's come home from the East Coast and come back to his Hoosier roots. And uh, also working on now a book about uh, Indiana's basketball history. Uh, so it's just the different number of pro projects and the different number of subjects that you tackle each day that is really inspiring. And as you said, I work with very bright people here at the Historical Society who are passionate about history and uh, endeavor to bring it to uh, all kinds of people throughout the state. You mentioned a Hoosier politician of a hundred and plus years ago. Uh, Indiana has had its fair share of colorful political characters. Do any of them stand out to you or ones that you would consider your favorite? I wouldn't say this uh, if I hadn't worked on him as a book subject, but Benjamin Harrison is a figure in Indiana history who I don't he gets attention because he's our only uh, president, uh, if you don't count William Henry Harrison, who spent a lot of time in Indiana. But in doing research on his uh, term of office and his, his life, uh, quite an impressive individual. Um, his presidency doesn't get the respect I think it deserves. He accomplished a lot especially during his uh, first two years in office because uh, the Republicans controlled not only the presidency, uh, but both houses of Congress. And he was uh, able to get through a lot of different kind of uh, legislation from improving pensions for uh, Civil War veterans to improving uh, the U.S. Navy, establishing national force preserves uh, throughout the country, uh, the admission of a number of new states in, into the Union. And he was someone who uh, was a hands-on chief executive. That uh, it was said that he could probably have handled uh, all the administrative departments uh, in the federal government better than the people he uh, uh, appointed to, to handle those departments. And he often had to do that because the Secretary of State James G. Blaine was often ill at the time, so he had to handle, uh, juggle a lot of uh, duties uh, while he was uh, president. But of course, because he lost re-election, you know, if you're a president and you don't get two terms of office these days, you're you're seen as a failure. Uh, but quite an impressive uh, life as a lawyer, one of the leading lawyers of the time, a Civil War general. Um, and uh, a politician who was uh, uh, beloved by his close friends. Uh, one thing that hurt him as well was the fact that he was seen as kind of an aloof figure. He was kind of, you know, ice, Iceberg Ben, they called him, uh, because he didn't have the ability to, you know, glad hand like a lot of the uh, mm -hmm. politicians of that time. Uh, in fact, there was a story going uh, around that, uh, he, uh, one of his good friends uh, heard that he was going to give a speech in, in Indiana City, and he said, now, Ben, 
I know you do fine as as a speaker, but afterwards, you know, mill around a bit, you know, shake hands with some of the boys, you know, and tr- try to get to know them. And he went off and he came back and said, you know, I just I just couldn't do it. You know, just that's not just my personality. Uh, he wasn't a glad hander, but uh, he was uh, an impressive uh, order and uh, someone uh, who had uh, people uh, who really felt that uh, he was one of the finest figures they had ever met in their lives. Can you describe Wendell Wilkie in five words or fewer? Uh, the barefoot boy from Wall Street. Yes, indeed. Wendell Wilkie was uh, <laughs> one of those people in, in, in Indiana history who sprang uh, into prominence uh, unexpectedly uh, from, you know, a titan in uh, business and, and industry to uh, one of those dark horse figures in American history who spring on the scene and all of a sudden, you know, they're in, involved in national politics and uh, was a, a figure who seemed to have a, a good chance to unseat FDR, which was unheard of at that time. Uh, in politics, if you're going to take tackle uh, such a popular president as, as Roosevelt, and uh, someone who uh, was a strong figure in World War II, mm-hmm. uh, fighting for for the Allied cause, and uh, uh, just an impressive individual overall. He lost to Franklin Roosevelt in the 1940 presidential election, and then imme- almost immediately went to work for the administration in, mm-hmm. in the roles that you just said, much like. Mm-hmm. He didn't live very long either. Wilkie yeah. didn't live very long after 19, or 1940. And another person who didn't live very long after he lost the presidential election was Stephen Douglas, who lost in 1860 to Lincoln and then immediately wanted let Lincoln know how much he wanted to be helpful. Right. The politics of yore. I wrote a column for the Indianapolis Star a couple of years ago. It was basically a tribute to Richard Luger. And I called him, judged him to be the single greatest public servant in the history of Indiana. Am I, if I'm wrong, how wrong am I? If I'm right, please, please uh, append to that. I find it hard to argue against that uh, because of his long career. Uh, all he did, not only for Indiana, uh, but the world as well. And I, I was always impressed by, uh, by Senator Luger. Uh, when I was in Rensselaer at the Rensselaer Republican, uh, I covered one of his campaign appearances. And it wasn't a, you know, a big splashy affair. It was just held at someone's house out in the countryside. And you know, he sat down, had coffee with uh, uh, local constituents, uh, talked to them one-on-one, uh, very personable, uh, very informative about what was going on in Washington, D.C., and he's always had a special place in my heart because I had written a book about Jim Johns, another Indiana a political figure, a congressman, uh, also a state legislature who I covered when I was in uh, Rensselaer, uh, a conservationist. Uh, ran against Luger in 1994. Ran against Luger. And Luger remembered that race. And he read the biography that I wrote about Jim and wrote me a very kind letter uh, praising the book. Uh, so I, I always remember that kindness uh, from the senator. I, re- uh, I remember having a conversation with Mitch Daniels when he came on the podcast the first time. And he told me that he had told Bob Blameyer, who I'm sure you know, 
I used do. to work for, for Birch Buy. Birch Buy staff wrote a they very They had nice some book sort of it. something in the Capitol for Birch Buy. And as Daniels is walking out, he's yelling at, at, at Bob, I'm reading your book on... <laughs> I'm reading your book on Senator Bye. I just thought that was kind of typical of the folks back then, in which in the sense that everyone was interested in people's lives without judging them. Um, I wrote, uh, I didn't write, I said at a at a uh, event honoring P.E. McAllister, who's the greatest of the great, uh, that I thought that Mitch Daniels and Richard Luger and Birch by were three were the three Hoosiers I would carve first into an Indiana Mount Rushmore. Who would be your fourth or take one of mine away and give us your Mount Rushmore of Hoosier leaders? I'd probably add Lee Hamilton uh, to that mountainside if I could. Uh, also looking into like non-political figures, but uh, people who had really made an impact on not only uh, Indianapolis, but the state and the country and the world. I think May Wright Sewell, uh, who was a uh, Indiana suffragette, a, a teacher, an, an activist, uh, created so many, uh, helped to create so many institutions in Indianapolis that are, are still around today, like the Indianapolis Women's Club, uh, the Propylaeum. Uh, uh, the uh, a number of other organizations uh, uh, as well. Uh, just an impressive uh, figure, uh, fought for for world peace at a time when it was not popular uh, to do so, and just had a, an amazing impact on uh, her students that she taught at the girls' classical school, and uh, you know went all around the country, you know speaking on behalf of of women's rights and. Uh, so I I put her up there as well. My fourth, and and I would put him forward as the most underrated person in Indiana history. Not that he's not known, but but he should get a lot more credit. And that would be Civil War Governor Oliver P. Morton, who wasn't even elected governor in eighteen sixty. Uh, Lane was elected governor mm-hmm. in 1860, and they switched jobs. Is that right? I think yeah. Lane went on. Lane to became the senator, senator and yeah. uh, Morton became uh, the governor, and talk, was just a rock during. I was going to say, talk War. a little bit about Oliver P. Morton's. He's Republican, and his performance during the the Civil War in Indiana is one of the top five governors of the entire conflict, in my view. Go ahead. I agree. He really held the uh, union uh, together, uh, was a staunch ally of President Lincoln uh, during a very grim time in, in American history. And one of my favorite stories is that, um, you know, Lou Wallace and uh, Governor Morton uh, were uh, both Democrats at one time and both were good friends. And Morton jumped to the young Republican Party and that kind of ruined their friendship for a time. Uh, but when the Civil War broke out, one of the first things uh, that Morton did was call on, on Wallace, who had a, a kind of a military reputation because he was a leader of a, a militia company in uh, Crawfordsville, uh, the Montgomery uh, Guard. And, uh, you know, they patched up their differences and realized that they were now both, you know, 
fighting for the preservation of the Union. Morden sent him out uh, to be the uh, adjutant general for the state to raise the necessary regiments called for uh, by Lincoln. And uh, Wallace did so, and uh, Morton continued to support the Union uh, throughout uh, the war, even during times when uh, there were uh, difficulties in Indiana with, uh, you know, the Democratic Party at that time, uh, you know, threatening the purse strings and kind of Morton ran things out of a safe in his office and with help <laughs> from the federal government. Well, Indiana so was a the southern Indiana was a hotbed of southern sympathy. That's one of the reasons why I'm so enamored with Morton is that mm-hmm. he had to keep keep the state loyal while being personally loyal to Lincoln and the greater cause. And to me, there are a lot of really strong Hoosier politicians that come out of the Civil War era. Uh, future Vice President and Speaker of the House, Skylar Colfax. You mentioned Benjamin Harrison, even though he's from Ohio. Lou Wallace, the list goes on and on. What do you think of Indiana's performance during the Civil War? It was probably one of the... Uh, uh, greatest performances by any state in the Union, particularly uh, in the Western theater. Uh, our regiments performed Herculean tasks uh, with uh, Grant and Sherman uh, as they, uh, you know, uh, captured Fort Henry, Fort, Fort Donaldson, um, eventually Vicksburg, and the 20th Indiana uh, did uh, really great service in uh, the Army of the Potomac, especially at the Battle of Gettysburg. So. Really, without all these various Indiana regiments and Indiana generals uh, that were involved in the war, um, I think the Union could have fallen. So uh, we really gave a a great contribution uh, during the Civil War, and it's one to be proud of. And Indiana played a not dispositive, but critical role at the 1860 Republican National Convention in Chicago to get Abraham Lincoln nominated. I just did a podcast on that convention. It's a terrific book, it was a fun podcast. I hope you have listened to it. But then Check Indiana post-Civil War, it kind of slid a bit. And by that, I mean, and correct me, please, if I'm wrong, but it doesn't seem that Indiana truly embraced for way too long the 14th and 15th Amendments to the Constitution, the 13th Amendment, obviously, freeing the slaves, the 14th, equal protection, citizenship, and 15th, all black males could vote. Why is it that when you write about, and we had James Madison on the mm-hmm. podcast, who obviously you know very well, the brilliant Indiana historian down at IU, retired. Why did Indiana succumb to the Jim Crow elixir, the seduction of what happened in this state in the late 19th century, early 20th. And I'd say this as someone who grew up in Irvington. So the Madge Oberholzer house was on the same block where I live and the uh, DC Stevenson house is just three or four blocks from that. It's a terrible time in Indiana history to reflect on. And Jim has written uh, so well on it with his uh, Ku Klux Klan in, in Indiana book and his uh, uh, new history, uh, Hoosiers, a new history uh, of Indiana. And I think we had that because of, uh, you know, just this southern uh, migration. 
into Indiana uh, during uh, the growth of uh, Indiana as a state. And they brought those prejudices with them. And, you know, fear does uh, terrible things to people's minds. And fear was stoked a lot of Hoosiers uh, by uh, Klan leaders like uh, D.C. Stevenson. And uh, once it catches hold, it's hard to get rid of. Uh, but uh, I prefer to remember the people who uh, fought against the Klan in the 1920s and um, in the post-Civil War era, uh, the uh, great contributions made by the state to uh, this country's literary heritage with people like James Wickham Riley, uh, Booth Tarkington, uh, Meredith Nicholson, and, and many other writers uh, and artists, uh, the Hoosier Group, T.C. Steele, and uh, many others. Uh, but uh, that stain is something that uh, we really can't wipe away from our past and can only hope to confront it and learn lessons from it for today. It always seems so ironic to me that Indiana sacrificed so many of its young men to keep the country together at the beginning and then clearly to keep the country together and free the slaves at the end of the Civil War. How much of what Indiana's mindset, how much of it was set by the fact that so many freed slaves or African-Americans were coming north to escape the discrimination of the South? only to run into discrimination that if it wasn't the exact same, it surely was a close cousin. It was indeed. You know, we had our own black laws uh, in Indiana. Uh, if you were an African-American citizen in Indianapolis, for example, uh, you couldn't go to certain restaurants, couldn't sit in uh, certain theaters, movie theaters, uh, other performance halls uh, in, the, in the city. Uh, you were redlined into uh, neighborhoods uh and forced to to live in uh, certain uh neighborhoods in indianapolis couldn't move to the suburbs uh, as a, a lot of the indianapolis uh, white citizens did uh, after world war ii uh, it's uh, you were forced into one high school one segregated high school uh, which christmas addicts high school in indianapolis uh, which made uh, had a lot of great uh, people uh, graduate from it, but uh, you know it's still something that uh, I think we should uh, not be proud of uh, as Hoosiers and always uh, remember uh, what happened during those days. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today is Hoosier historian Ray Boomhauer. He works at the Indiana Historical Society. Uh, Ray, is there a particular Hoosier leader and or legend you admire? The one name that springs to mind immediately, of course, is uh, Ernie Pyle, uh, the World War II correspondent. And he was such a, a big part of my education at Indiana University. I went to classes as a journalism student in Ernie Pyle Hall. Uh, on the second floor of that building, uh, there's a, a lounge. There was a lounge area at uh, when I was there, uh, showing off some of the memorabilia of his life, including his typewriters, his Pulitzer Prize citation. Uh, and, uh, you know, we read his columns uh, that he contributed uh, about the uh, war 
and I was just fascinated by his sparse, simple style, uh, but really uh, hit you in the gut, particularly his uh, death of Captain Waskow story. And uh, one uh, column in particular that always struck with me was the one he wrote uh, for um, publication after the war in Europe ended, and he was unable to see it published because he was killed on Okinawa before that could happen. And people found this uh, unpublished column on his body uh, when they recovered it, talking about uh, the cost that the war had brought to the uh, American fighting man. You know, dead men uh, by the thousands, you know, lying in the roadside in, in Europe, dead men by mass production, uh, dead men so numerous that sometimes, uh, you know, you you came to hate them. And uh, he said, you know, you at home didn't see this, uh, but those of us uh, who were there, you know, saw it and saw it uh, countless times. And it was just a, an impressive uh, piece of writing that always stuck with me. And uh, I always admire him, you know, a guy from a small town uh, in Indiana, Dana, uh, who went on and uh, saw the world and uh, wrote about it well and uh, became beloved by those who uh, fought the war in Europe and also in the Pacific. One of the sponsors of the podcast is the Grand Hall at Historic Union Station. And if you go there, you'll see a plaque and it denotes the visit of Arthur Conan Doyle to Indianapolis. We've had some amazing visitors in this city. Are there any visitors from around the world that stick out to you or events that you've studied from when someone from another country or another state comes in as besides everyone who's freaked out by the Indianapolis 500, who's never seen it mm -hmm. before that's universal, but are there any other ones? There's one individual that springs to mind immediately because, uh, we had an article in Traces Magazine a number of years back, and recently uh, we did a, a book about uh, the Asian Americans uh, in the state. And it was a royal visit to Indiana by uh, a Chinese prince named Pu Lun, or I think it's Pu Lun or Pu Lan. Uh, I can't remember correctly, uh, but he visited Indianapolis. Uh, went to uh, a reception, you know, it was greeted by the mayor and other important figures like William Fortune, uh, who was a big uh, man in, in business in, in Indianapolis. And, uh, you know, he there was a grand luncheon in his honor. Uh, he uh, went and visited uh, local uh, business establishments and even took in a, a baseball game uh, at, at the end of the day. So it was made uh, quite a splash in uh, Indiana, Indianapolis newspapers and uh, quite an, an important visit uh, from such a, uh, a royal figure uh, that he was. I definitely want to mention a few of the folks you've chronicled. We've been lucky enough to have a couple of space race, space program themed podcasts, one on John Glenn. Gus Grissom. Most people probably first encountered him because of the movie The Right Stuff, in which he um, seems to be treated fairly, but you feel sorry for him. You've written about Gus Grissom, and then, of course, he died in that horrible fire with uh, Chafee, Roger Chafee and Ed White, Apollo 1. Um, what drew you to Grissom, just besides the fact, perhaps, that he's phenomenally brave? 
Well, Indiana has a great state park system. And uh, as a kid, my father took my uh, two brothers and I on to a trip to Spring Mill Park uh, in Mitchell, Indiana. And we had a great time, you know, hiking the trails and going through Donaldson's Cave in, in a flat bottom uh, rowboat, I think it was, a raft. Uh, but the highlight for me was going to the Gus Gerson Memorial that's located just uh, by the uh, entrance to the park. And I was just fascinated. I was always a space nut because, you know, uh, when I was in school, uh, the teacher would roll in a portable television and we watch, you know, the liftoffs from uh, Cape Kennedy, uh, the various space missions, including uh, Gemini and Apollo, uh, which uh, uh, Gemini uh, featured uh, Gus on Gemini 3 uh, with uh, uh, John Young, of course, uh, on his uh, first uh, trip into space. But I was just fascinated by his life. They had the uh, uh, Molly Brown spacecraft uh, at the memorial. An uh, uh, introductory film uh, about uh, the space exploration and Gus's contribution to it. And at that time, uh, it the spacecraft wasn't behind this large plexiglass like it is today. Mm. But you could actually reach in and uh, touch some of the components. Uh, so that kind of hands-on really? history really was a great influence on, on me. So to me, Gus was always uh, a real American hero. And I was very happy uh, to write about him for Traces Magazine and then to uh, do a biography about him for our Indiana biography series. So he yeah. went to space twice, isn't that correct? Yes, twice. He was twice. in, of course, mm -hmm. uh, Liberty Bell 7, uh, which had the disaster after he successfully splashed down. And, uh, the hatch blew off and he had to escape the spacecraft and almost drowned in, in the process. And then uh, he was picked by NASA to test out the uh, Gemini, new Gemini spacecraft that followed the uh, Mercury missions. And uh, Gemini was kind of the uh, program that tested all the things you needed to do in order, in order to get to the moon and back. Uh, to meet uh, President Kennedy's goal, landing a man on the moon and getting him safely back to Earth before the end of the decade. And, uh, you know, Grissom was picked by NASA to test out that new Gemini spacecraft. And when uh, the Apollo program mission started, you know, he was picked again by NASA uh, to uh, iron out uh, the difficulties with the Apollo spacecraft, the command module. But unfortunately, he could not do that because he was killed on a supposedly safe uh, ground test. Uh, in Apollo 1. Uh, and what did happen there? Why couldn't they rescue those three men? Well, the main problem was there was this go fever involved with NASA. And they thought the astronauts, as I think Wally Schrock said, that if you shot a, a refrigerator into space, the astronauts were confident enough uh, as pilots that they could, you know, orbit it and, and land it safely. <laughs> uh, and there was this big rush uh, trying to get, you know, to the moon before the Russians. Uh, the space race was something that was real and tangible at that time. And uh, they were trying to meet Kennedy's goal, getting there before the end of the decade. I think uh, they were a little uh, blasé about the dangers involved in space travel because they had such great successes in uh, both the Mercury and uh, Gemini uh, missions. And... Uh, Safety precautions were not uh, taken seriously um, during this uh, supposedly safe ground test. You know, they uh, pumped the spacecraft full of pure oxygen at atmosphere, uh, you know, bolted on a hatch because they weren't worried about trying to get someone out of the spacecraft on the ground. They were more worried that the uh, hatch might blow prematurely once they were in orbit. 
Mm. Uh, so all these things, uh, you know, kind of worked uh, against uh, the astronauts. Uh, they weren't worried about a fire in the spacecraft. There's all kinds of combustible material and chemicals uh, involved in that Apollo 1 spacecraft. And when the, a wire frayed and it sparked, you know, that pure oxygen atmosphere just was an inferno. And um, they couldn't get the astronauts out in time, unfortunately. They lost their lives, gave it for the space program. Speaking of the 1960s and tragedy, ultimately, ultimate tragedy, we were lucky enough to have Mike Riley on the podcast. I'm going to guess that you know Mike or knew Mike. God I knew Mike soul. very well. Yeah, in Rensselaer. <laughs> he was a lawyer there when I was at the Republican. And although I uh, didn't cover a lot of his trials, that was my boss, Lisa Janko, who uh, covered a lot and became good friends with him. But I did get to know him a bit in Rensselaer. A very kind, very generous man. He appeared on the podcast to discuss his role as basically state campaign manager for Robert F. Kennedy in 1968 here in Indiana. You uh, won an award, first place, nonfiction from Indiana Chapter Society of Professional Journalists uh, for your account of Robert Kennedy in the 1968 primary. What drew you to I mean, it's pretty famous. There's lots of reasons it's famous, whether it's the, it's the fact that he won and that kind of set him on the path, the speech he gave at, at what is now Kennedy King Park. Uh, what about that race in 68 fascinated you enough to apply your writing talents to it? I was drawn to that subject because of an individual who worked as an advisor on the Kennedy campaign. It was a guy named John Bartlow Martin. Mr. Hoosier himself uh, was an ex-reporter, uh, a freelance writer, and had uh, worked on a variety of Democratic presidential campaigns leading up to that race. He had worked on both of Adlai Stevenson's campaigns in 52 and 56, uh, worked for John F. Kennedy, uh, as kind of a, uh, a roving speech writer during his 1960 uh, winning effort, uh, went on to uh, work for LBJ in 1964. And uh, because of his Hoosier roots, because they uh, knew that he knew the state well, he'd written a very well-regarded book about the state called Indiana, uh, an interpretation. Uh, he knew Hoosiers and what they were thinking and what they were looking for in the candidate. He was very involved in Kennedy's race in, for the Democratic presidential primary in, in, in Indiana for much of April and up to May 7th when, when the voting was. So I was fascinated by his role in the Kennedy effort, and that got me uh, involved uh, in covering uh, Kennedy's time in the state. Uh, I was drawn, of course, because of his uh, amazing extemporaneous speech on April 4th following the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and uh, he had uh, picked that day to, you know, start his campaign in Indiana uh, for the Democratic primary and uh, started the day in, at Ball State. Uh, gave us, uh, no, actually, he started in uh, South Bend mm -hmm. at Notre Dame, went to Ball State. And from there, he was coming to Indianapolis for a campaign rally when he heard the news about King's death. And uh, it's just always amazing to me. Here's a, a candidate for office who has. You know, a speechwriting staff who's supposed to uh, offer him their words when the you know news breaks or uh, he's uh, you know giving uh, a talk to the voters, 
But here he's driving from uh, Weircook Airport to downtown uh, Indianapolis and has to come up with words to explain this uh, terrible uh, event, you know, King's death uh, by a supposedly white assassin. And uh, in that time driving down, he comes up with uh, words that uh, really resonate to today. And it's really one of the most remarkable speeches under pressure uh, that any politician uh, has given in American history, I think. And I doubt there are any politicians around today who could have done what he did at that time. And it's really, you know, grace under pressure uh, to the uh, to the utmost. Do you believe Kennedy would have won the 68 presidential race? I think there's great doubts that he would even have won the Democratic nomination. You know, while because Kennedy, of the way it was controlled back then, the, the way time. it was controlled by being a big city Paul and, uh, uh, you know, he's battling his brains out against Eugene McCarthy and all these primary states. And meanwhile, uh, with Johnson dropping out of the race, his vice president, Hubert Humphrey, decides to uh, jump in. Uh, he's not entered any of the primaries, but he's going around to, you know, uh, caucuses and uh, talking to um, the Democratic leaders and states. He's piling up all these delegates, building a pretty substantial lead going into the Chicago convention. And a lot of some Kennedy advisors thought it was just a 50-50 chance that he could even uh, win the nomination. Others thought there was a good chance they could, you know, after California, they might be able to, you know, not some other victories in primary states like big big states like New York, that Kennedy might be able to uh, sweet talk uh, Mayor Daley in Chicago to supporting his cause. And that would be a great, uh, you know, supporter to have when the convention opens. Um, but I think it's really doubtful that he would even have won the nomination. Uh, others believe he would have and he would have gone on to beat Richard Nixon uh, in the fall campaign. But uh, it's historians are always better about telling you what happened instead of what <laughs> might have happened. Unfortunately. You have a new book out. I'd like you to take some time. A few minutes we have left on the Leaders and Legends podcast with Bray, Ray Boomhauer. Uh, talk about, please, your your latest book. And the reason that I found it somewhat interesting when you mentioned it is uh, there's a fellow coming on the podcast named Alex Kershaw, the World War II historian, and he Great wrote guy. a biography of Robert Kappa, mm -hmm. another famous photographer during um, the first half of the 20th century. Tell us, please, about your book. My last book was about a gentleman named Richard uh, Tregascus. Uh, many people, if you uh, say Richard Tregascus, they say who? You know, they don't remember the name. But if you mention uh, Guadalcanal Diary, uh, oh, that guy. Uh, it's one of the uh, best-selling books that was uh, published during the war about his uh, time with the U.S. Marines on uh, uh, Guadalcanal. But he was a correspondent for the International News Service, kind of a, a stepchild to both the Associated Press and United Press International. But he ranged all over the world during uh, the war, starting out in the Pacific. He was on uh, the fleet that saw the Doolittle Raiders launch off of the uh, USS Hornet to bomb mm. Tokyo, was involved, went to the with the Hornet during the Battle of Midway. Uh, saw their planes take off to battle and achieve victory over the Japanese fleet. He was on Guadalcanal with the Marines during those really tough times uh, during the first seven weeks of the campaign for that island. 
when the Marines seemed to be besieged and uh, almost ready any day to be knocked off the island, decimated by the uh, Japanese army, but hung on and eventually achieved victory. Wrote a best-selling book about it. And after that, uh, went on to uh, uh, to cover the war in Europe, was there for the invasion of Sicily, uh, met Robert Kappa uh, during that invasion, uh, talked to him. Uh, during those days, uh, was there for the invasion of Italy, and he had run into a lot of close calls during his uh, time in the Pacific, but uh, finally in Italy, uh, a German shell caught him and struck him in the head. He was uh, very uh, seriously wounded, uh, fought back, and eventually returned to action. And at that time, uh, Ernie Powell wrote a column about him and his recovery in Italy and said that uh, if he had suffered such a, a wound as uh, Tregasis said, he would have gone home and rested on his laurels forever. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Tregasis was determined to go back into the fray, uh, went back, back to uh, Europe, followed the uh, D-Day landings, was there for the uh, great battle to capture uh, first major German cities, Aachen, was involved in a terrible street fighting there. And after that, you thought, well, you know, the or average person would have said, you know, I've done enough. Let's go home and enjoy uh, enjoy life again as a civilian. But uh, the Saturday Evening Post asked him to go back to the Pacific to uh, go with a new B-29 bomber crew and follow them uh, as they made their way from the United States to uh, Guam and from there to missions against the Japanese. And he said, you know, I don't want to go, but I think I ought to. And he did. He went back uh, to the Pacific War. Uh, went on bombing missions, went on the carrier USS Ticonderoga, and uh, went on uh, missions against the uh, Japanese ships uh, in uh, the Japanese home islands, and uh, was there when the atomic bomb uh, finally ended the war in, in the Pacific and returned home finally. So uh, quite a life uh, was someone who was also involved in uh, the Vietnam War, went back as a war correspondent and uh, wrote a book called Vietnam Diary about the uh, early days of American involvement in the war in the early 1960s. And he did all this, uh, by the way, I forgot to mention that he did all this while suffering from diabetes, which was a very debilitating illness. Uh, had to deal with that all during his time overseas. So uh, just a very inspiring figure to write about. My take is that and I'm not a world traveler, but my take is there are very few cities that have transformed itself in the last 50 plus years, like Indianapolis. You've been around the city for a long time. What do you think of the transformation and some of the leaders who made made it happen to where Indianapolis, I've said this ad nauseum, when I was a kid growing up on the east side, the only time I went downtown was to see Dick the Bruiser another uh, writing subject of yours. Uh, it's changed so much. What do you think of it and, and some of the people who've made it happen? It's been quite a dramatic change. If you look back in 1968, of course, when Kennedy was running here in Indiana, it brought a lot of national political correspondents to the city. And they were quite unimpressed by what they saw. Uh, they uh, said that if uh, a UFO landed in downtown Indianapolis, uh, the alien would take one look around, get back in their spaceship and, and leave and uh, search for greener pastures. They were very upset about uh, all the restaurants that seemed to be closing at six o'clock while they were out on the beat and they couldn't find a good restaurant downtown to eat at. 
And during my time in Indianapolis working for the State Museum and now for the Indiana Historical Society, it's been uh, just uh, quite a turnaround uh, for the city, uh, not only with the various uh, sports, with the Colts coming, of course, to, to Indianapolis. Uh, but I remember um, going to a, a Marion County Indianapolis Historical Society meeting and Mayor Hunnett was there talking about his vision uh, for downtown. And at that time, I believe there were, you know, they were building Circle Center, Mallard, hoping to build Circle Center, but uh, they were, you know, just uh, you know, tearing down a lot of buildings. There were just these giant holes downtown. It wasn't very, uh, 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 you look at it and you think, well, what what is he thinking of? And then, you know, Circle Center was complete, yeah, the development, uh, the restoration of, of Union Station, uh, the um, uh, re renovation and expansion of the convention center downtown. And so it's been a, a dramatic change. I remember I first started at the Indiana Historical Society. The canal downtown here that I can see from my window now was just a ditch, you know, full of garbage. And mm. now it's, it's a beautiful place to take a walk and enjoy downtown Indianapolis. So I've been uh, lucky enough to be here and see all this change. And it's been uh, something that's been inspiring uh, for me as both uh, an individual who lives here, but also as a historian as well. We have reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Ray, are you ready? I'll try. I'll try to answer. What was your first job? I was a clerk and general uh, do everything for a drugstore in um, South Bend, which is, uh, of course, located just across the line from uh, Mishawaka. So I did everything from run the cash register on Sunday mornings. Uh, usually people were coming in, uh, buying the, the Sunday edition of the South Bend Tribune, straightening shelves uh, uh, at the end of the evening, you know, sweeping and dusting uh, uh, the floor and, and the counters as well. So it was a, a great experience for a high school student. Uh, put some money in my pocket and uh, got me uh, involved with, uh, you know, being able to talk to people, with all kinds of people who came into the drugstore, not only for sundries, but their prescriptions as well. What was your first concert? The first concert I remember was at Morris Civic Auditorium in South Bend. And I believe it was REO Speedwagon, uh, which was, of course, a, a big group in the Midwest at that time. Uh, was very impressed by uh, their guitarist, Gary Rickrath, I think his name yeah, was. Gary Rickrath, yeah. yeah, and they produced at that time a great live album that uh, really uh, set them uh, up for the rest of, of their career and uh, uh, impressed by uh, their performance and uh, their light show as well. <laughs> Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you choose? I would probably choose uh, William Manchester's biography of Douglas MacArthur, uh, the general Caesar. American Caesar. Uh, Manchester is uh, not so well known today, but he produced some great biographies of uh, individuals from MacArthur uh, to, of course, his well-regarded uh, two-volume uh, series on uh, Winston Churchill. But that MacArthur book uh, is amazing at uh, the way he handles such a 
mercurial, mercurial individual as MacArthur was, and it really gets to uh, know him as an individual, individual, all his uh, uh, glories as a commander, and all his disasters as well. Manchester also wrote the book, The Death of a President. Very controversial. Yes. Very controversial. Yes. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? I'd probably choose uh, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address uh, because of the uh, inspirational words he spoke that day. Uh, Lincoln, you know, was seen as a great president, but he was also a great writer. I would like to be there in the crowd to hear what he had to say at the dedication of the Gettysburg Cemetery there uh, on the battlefield. And uh, I like to you know, talk to people in the crowd and say, were you expecting a longer speech by the president? You know, it's just a very short speech. Uh, were you expecting more? Uh, I know that. Uh, Edward Everett took all the time. Wherever. Yeah, it took a long time. And then later after the uh Ceremony is older. He he wrote the president saying, "I wish I could have, uh, you know, said in, uh, in in less words than you did to kind of capture uh, the whole uh, ceremony." Yeah, I think it, I wish I had come as close yeah. as you did to capturing right. the moment in mm-hmm. two hours as you did in like two or something two like that. Two minutes or whatever. So, yeah, yeah, like, exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Last question: If you could have dinner with anyone living today. Anyone living today, two hours off the record, whom would you choose? Hmm. That's a great question. You might have stumped me there. There's just so many choices to make. Uh, Say Frank Egan. Frank Egan's a good choice. Um, Take him to the steering. <laughs> or maybe the working man's friend. Maybe that's correct. That's either uh, one. Yeah. You're right. You're great. Yeah. I had lunch with the working man's friend about a month and a half ago, and there were six people in there who had been on my podcast. Right. <laughs> I just thought <laughs> maybe we should a, have a, a reunion there. A fun uh, irony. Go ahead. Uh, right. Yeah. I would like to take Lee Hamilton uh, to lunch at, at working man's and uh, talk to him about his career and all the people he, he met during that time. And, uh, particularly the investigative committees he was on and following, I think he was on the committee after 9-11. He was also on Iran-Contra. Iran-Contra, all those. You kind of get some of the uh, stories he couldn't tell in public details about those investigations. I've made a couple of attempts to get him on. I haven't given up yet, but he certainly is on any list of the greatest Hoosier public servants, along with our friend Andy Jacobs, speaking of congressmen who have served us well you have I enjoyed I, I enjoyed Go visiting ahead. sorry i enjoyed visiting andy at his home and uh he introduced me to the uh, mr belvedere movies oh, so we sat there and watched uh <laughs> clifton webb who was just great a great another hoosier who was a uh, great in, in those movies a very uh funny guy and they were very uh funny movies and i enjoyed uh we, andy introducing them to me you couldn't move because those damn dogs, they were like horses. Yeah. I admire anyone who could uh, handle beasts <laughs> such as that. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, 
the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. As always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Our guest today has been Ray Boomhauer. He is one of the foremost historians for Hoosiers and of Hoosiers. Ray, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Robert. I did as well. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.